time of year and we look at these familiar narratives, we mustn't miss the significance of the details. And we mustn't miss the heart of writers like Luke, inspired of the Holy Spirit, in bringing us the wonder of the coming of the Lord Jesus, the Savior like no other. And beneath the story, you have great depths of supporting truth and history. And that's what we have here in our text this morning in Luke 2 and verse 8 to 14. Over 700 years before this baby was born, the prophet Micah, again inspired of God, recorded that the Savior would be born in a small, obscure town called Bethlehem. And just at the right time, it happened as had been foretold. And it reminds us that God's plan, His purpose, His word always comes to pass. It is always true. It is always accurate. And we see that so clearly in our passage this morning. And the first thing that I want you to see is that the Savior who came is sovereign. If you were to look and to see in the passage the way things pan out, you will see the, the way in which the Lord led Joseph and Mary. And uh, we see in the passage how Joseph, it says, also went up from Galilee to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, to be registered with Mary. She brought forth her firstborn son. It's interesting that it wasn't Joseph or Mary that brought all this about. You know, when you read through the New Testament, it doesn't say that Joseph fully grasped that the child Jesus was going to save his people from the sins and be the son of David who would reign over an eternal kingdom. We know that he was told those things. We don't know how much he grasped. It doesn't say that Joseph knew all the prophetic truth about this unique child and that he arranged for them to be in Bethlehem. It doesn't say that. Also, the Scriptures don't say that Mary persuaded Joseph to make the move to Bethlehem so that all these things could be fulfilled, all the prophecies. There is nothing to suggest that Mary and Joseph played any role in planning to be in Bethlehem for the birth of the Lord Jesus. You know, really, naturally speaking, you can imagine that Mary would have wanted to have been near home and near family at that stage of her pregnancy. She would certainly not have planned to be in some outhouse some stable, if you will, surrounded by strangers in a small town, forced there by a Roman census. Nine months pregnant, it is unlikely that she would have chosen to make that 90-mile journey, sometimes riding on a donkey, sometimes walking when it was enough for her to contend with carrying a precious baby. See, Joseph and Mary were in Bethlehem, not by their own planning, but because the Lord planned to have them there. And God is able to move and to wield empires to accomplish his plan and to bless his people. From a human perspective, it was earthly powers who didn't really even know about the Messiah or cared about him. The census set in motion by a pagan supreme ruler of the Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus. He was a man of immense earthly power. He didn't care anything about the true and living God. He worshipped his own idols. He had no interest in any Messiah. It was that man who set in motion the events that would take this unknown couple to Bethlehem. 
You know, even before the virgin birth, Scripture makes it clear that the heavyweight political forces, all the powers of men, were being directed by God. Not for their own sake, but for the sake of his people and the fulfillment of salvation's plan. And so Mary and Joseph, insignificant, unknown to the eyes of Rome, were being brought from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Caesar demanded that everybody in the Roman Empire be registered with a view towards taxation. The decree was made, and we see in verse 1, that Quirinius, who had authority in Syria, which included Judea, set these things to be. Now, it's interesting that the Romans at that time, they didn't require it. The local rulers, like Herod, insisted that everybody had to go to their ancestral home so that it was easier for them to carry out the census and to take the records and for it to be done as quickly as possible. And so at the exact right time, God moved the heart of Caesar to set these things in motion. We're reminded of Proverbs 21, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. Now, a census like this would only happen every 14 years. And so this particular one was called in 8 BC. But local rulers like Herod in particular, even though when they would do the process, wanted it done quickly, would stall because they wanted to show that they still had some authority. And so Judea didn't comply for a few years. Other parts of the empire, the Roman Empire did, but Judea did not. And it's interesting because even in the detail of that delay of Herod, all was falling into place to make sure that Jesus was born at the right place, the right time in God's plan. Friend, we're reminded this morning that our God is a great God who does great wonders. He can do miracles. He can intervene in wonderful ways, supernatural ways. He is the mighty God. There is none that can stop his hand. And what God could do, what he can do, is not in question. Instead, the issue here is what he willed to do. And the will of God was that Christ, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. And that is evident from the very beginning of his incarnation. And, you know, we, we know that God can do great things, but it really thrills my heart when we also see how God works through what we call providence. How God is able to accomplish his, his great purposes, his glorious purposes, using the ordinary things in the world and in our lives. As one explains, providence is a term that has got to do with God in not interfering with the normal processes of life, but orchestrating all of those contingencies, all of those thoughts, all of those actions to affect exactly what he wants, when he wants, with whom he wants, where he wants. The way that he weaves and works through life. And so you have this decree by a pagan Roman ruler, totally ignorant about Messianic promise and prophecy, totally ignorant about the message of the Old Testament, God overrules. And then you've got the delays of a, a selfish, self-absorbed local ruler, Herod, who's disinterested in, in doing anything that would undermine his own power, wouldn't want to do anything to contribute to the arrival of a challenger to his throne. God overrules. Every single thing they do, every independent choice they make, every willful, ignorant act they made was drawn together to make sure that Jesus 
was born in Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem because of the the census, as the text emphasizes, but behind it all is the hand and purpose of a sovereign God. The census compelled them to move and not delay or wait for the baby to be born elsewhere. They had to be in Bethlehem at a specific time. And so behind all the admin, all the bureaucracy, all the decrees, all the deadlines, God was working. Caesar Augustus looking to strengthen his control, taking a census to do that. But the irony is that in seeking to strengthen his own grip of control, God is overruling that selfish ambition so that events were set so that Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior, should come. The one destined to sit on the throne, the throne of the world, born in the city of David, his royal ancestor. Events that would fulfill prophecy, establishing this particular detail in the messianic credentials of Jesus. Augustus, Herod, many others doing what they thought was right, doing what they wanted to do for their own benefit. Yet unknowingly establishing the claim of the royal son of David, a greater king. And all according to the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God. Friend, we might know these things, but they should cause us to stop and wonder at the greatness of our God. And it should encourage us this morning. You know, if we believe, it encourages us in difficult places. There is great comfort this morning in knowing that everything really is in God's hand. It really is. You know, we say it, but sometimes we struggle to believe it, particularly when we see the events in the world around us. But it really is all in his hands, and he is working his purposes out. And for all that is happening with COVID variants, with kings, with presidents, with prime ministers, all the powers acting in their own way, our God really is in control. And we can trust him. And sometimes we can get trapped in anxiety and fear when actually we need to remember again to trust the Lord because he's working all things to the glory of his name, the fulfillment of his purposes. You know, it's such a simple lesson. And if we are his this morning, none can pluck us from his hand. We can trust his word. We can trust his promises. We know them to be true. And we need to remember that God is overruling not just the big things, but also the little things, the details in our lives. And for those of us who are his children, working so that we might be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, a work that he will see through in us, working for our good and his glory. There's a lovely text in Isaiah 3 verse 10 where it says, Say to the righteous, that it shall be well with them. The blessing of the Lord is upon his people. And though the circumstances may be difficult to understand, may be hard to grasp, even painful to endure, it is possible, it is possible that we can know peace in the midst. And it is impossible for anything to be against the best interests of a believer in Christ. He is for his people. The Lord orders the steps of his own. Friend, maybe this morning you're going through things that you don't understand. And I can't tell you why. 
But I do know that if you're a believer, when you remember again the Lord for who he is, you won't fall into the trap of coming to the wrong conclusion that he is against you. Or that all the changing circumstances are only there to harm you. But you'll be in a place to say, Lord, I don't understand, but I know that you're my heavenly father and that you'll hold me and that you will keep me. I may not understand, but just like Mary and Joseph, I know that you will direct my steps. It may not be what I thought. It may not be where I thought, but it is your plan, and I trust you. I wonder if you feel as though you're being tossed about in the storm at the moment. You need to remember that Christ is the captain of your salvation. As the bright scene of yesterday dissolved and the dark clouds gathered, you need to know that your heavenly Father is still there ordering and controlling all things after the counsel of his own will and his grace is sufficient. As one has said, God makes people and places and scenes exactly what they are to us and with this assurance we may calmly receive all at his hands as sent in love. And we see that here, all was being ordered for the Saviour. The Saviour like no other, to be born in the place prophesied those centuries earlier. And what looked like one thing on the surface, a Roman emperor strengthening his grip, was in fact serving a very different purpose, setting the events in place for the arrival of the King of Kings. The sovereign Saviour, we can trust him. And we must trust him. Because he really is in control. And then the humble Saviour... You know, the greatest arrival, the greatest birth that the world had ever or would ever see, and yet it almost goes unnoticed in the world. Heaven knew, but the vast majority were ignorant of the fact that God had stepped down. Jesus was born in obscurity. If you look at verse 7, it speaks of this shelter where the baby is born, it would have been like a, a kind of wooden lean-to with a loft so that some people could sleep above, some below in little rooms with dividing walls, and there would have been a courtyard with animals and feeding troughs. And so when Mary and Joseph arrived, there were no rooms left, and so they were make to, left to make do, and Mary had to give birth in an open place with Joseph no doubt trying to secure some privacy for them both. It was in that setting that the King of kings and Lord of lords was born. When that little baby arrived, cried its first cry of life, the vast majority had no idea that the Saviour like no other had come. He wasn't born into a palace, he wasn't born into riches, but in utter anonymity in a busy, bustling, overcrowded little town, few, if any, realised that the eternal, holy, creator God of the universe had entered the world in human form. Now, Joseph had some awareness. He'd been told to call the baby Jesus, for he would save his people from their sins. He knew that he would also be called Emmanuel, God with us. Mary knew because Gabriel had declared that this baby was the son of the Most High. And though there were others, the many did not know. And it would have convinced them otherwise, just another baby. It's the same today. People just don't see the truth concerning Jesus. They may see the nativity scenes on cards or, or other things. They just don't see the significance of the coming of Jesus. 
And friends, no doubt there were other births in that town on that night. And that's why the angels tell the shepherds specifically, this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, feeding trough. You know, most babies would be wrapped in swaddling clothes. But only one would be lying in a manger, this feeding trough. Many babies maybe, but no baby like this. The Savior like no other, the humble Savior, God stepping down to save his people from their sins. And then lastly, the only Savior. Not many knew about the arrival of the only Savior, but some were about to be told, but who would be told? The great, the rich, the influences? No, some of the lowest status people in society, the shepherds. Why? Because this Savior did not come for the wise and the great and the good in their own sight. Sinners, Jesus came to save. If you look at verse 11, it says, there is born to you a Savior. Do you know that there is the gospel? That is the heart of the message of true Christianity. There is born to you a Savior. And some might say, well, surely the idea of a Savior, of Jesus coming to save, surely that's a new idea. That's something that, you know, would show itself in the New Testament. So how would these lowly shepherds have any idea about what they were being told? How would they know about a Savior? Well, throughout the Bible, the truth of God as Savior is seen. The shepherds would have known about God as Savior. You know, there are some, even still, who want to split apart the Bible, the Old and the New Testament, saying that the God of the Old Testament is, is hostile, he's angry, he's vengeful, but then you've got the New Testament, that's about Jesus and, and his love and his compassion, his mercy. That's just not right. You see, the reality is the God of the Old Testament was known to his people as Savior. This is also very different from the false gods of man's creation in the societies all around the people of Israel. There is only one true and living God, the eternal God, and by nature, he is a saving God. He is a delivering God. He is a rescuing God. And that's not how it was, or friends, it's not how it is in the rest of the world's religions and created gods. You know, if you spent any time studying other religions, you would find again and again ways through which people have to do something to try and gain favor or blessing or spiritual advance with some higher power or false god. It's all about them. It's about our efforts, our works. But you wouldn't find a god who is by nature a savior, a rescuer. You know, let me give you a couple examples from the Old Testament. And uh, some of the false gods that were around Israel at the time. One was called Baal. And you'll find that idol mentioned at times in Scripture, first being dominant amongst the people called the Canaanites. And the name Baal means Lord, but the dead idol had no power to save. And there's this one instance in the Old Testament where God's man Elijah faces the priests of Baal to see which God is real. And it's a place called Mount Carmel. And Elijah, God's man, his servant and prophet, has to face the priests of Baal to see whose God was greater. And Elijah says, well, we'll decide who is truly God. You've got Baal. I'm with Jehovah. So we'll build an altar. We'll lay a sacrifice on it. You know, we'll both do that. 
And you pray to Baal, I'll pray to Jehovah, and whoever sends down fire to burn up the sacrifice is truly God. And what follows is a terrible scene. Because the priests of Baal, they go into their manic wailing and screaming and cutting and dancing around, trying to get their apparent God Baal to act. But it's a dead idol. So he can't do anything. And even if any demons tried to impersonate, they couldn't cause such a miracle. So Elijah suggests that Baal might be sleeping. He might be indifferent. Or he might be on a holiday, unaware. Or even on the toilet, unable. Friends, you know, you start people like that who have an idea of God. You could call them deists. They have an idea of some God who is indifferent, who kind of set the world off, and yet now couldn't really care less. It's tragic because just like those priests of Baal, they can feel as though they're, they're screaming and yelling in this world at a God to do something, but he's not interested. And he cannot and will not save or deliver. And then you've got the other end of the spectrum, and again, I'll give you an example from the Old Testament, a God called Molech, false God. Spectrum swings the other way too. You know, there are some today who believe that God is aloof, indifferent, apathetic, but there are others, you talk to them, they believe that God is hostile and that he's vindictive and that he's vicious. And so in the Old Testament, there's a reference to this other false idol from Canaan called Molech. And he was apparently so hostile, so angry, that he had to be appeased and pacified so that he didn't just destroy people. And the way to do that was to sacrifice babies. Utterly dreadful and desperately dark and totally false. You know, you look across the various gods of the world and they range from apathy to hostility, but none of them our Savior. And what sets the God of the Bible apart, what sets Jehovah apart, is that he is the one true and living God. He's real, but also he is by nature compassionate and merciful and holy and just and loving and faithful and tender-hearted, and he is mighty to save. Now, in one sense, God shows his goodness, his kindness to all. We speak of something called common grace. He provides in so many ways. He sustains, he restrains evil in the world. He's patient, he's compassionate, but he also demonstrates his greatest work is salvation, rescuing people, the special saving grace that he gives to sinners. And our God is so gracious that he calls sinners to himself to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And this amazing gospel, which continues to be proclaimed throughout the world, shows that God is not aloof, he's not indifferent, but he cares and he intervenes. That there is one Savior of sinners, Christ the Lord. And the Bible says that God does not delight in the death of the wicked, but he desires that all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. No other God is like that, who is by nature Savior. And so these shepherds and the Jews, they knew God to be wise, to be powerful, to be understanding and just and holy, all those things, but they knew that by nature he was Savior. He'd appeared for them again and again, intervening to deliver them. You see it throughout their history, rescuing them from their enemies. So these shepherds, even at the bottom of the social ladder, they could still understand that God was by nature a rescuer. 
And they would have known that there had never been a sacrifice that had fully delivered. You know, it's likely that the sheep that they were looking after were in fact headed for temple sacrifices. And they knew that these, these offerings that were given within their system were trying to deal with sin. They were ongoing to deliver the people, secure forgiveness, but the final deliverance had not yet been secured. And so when the announcement came that there has been born a saviour, they would have had some idea of the significance of what was being said. The Old Testament reveals God as saviour throughout. You know, think of the following. Deuteronomy 20. The Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Psalm 25. You are the God of my salvation. Isaiah 63, which speaks of God's sovereign choice of Israel. He became the Savior. And it goes on to say, in all their affliction he was afflicted. The angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. And he bore them and carried them all the days of old. Do you know, Mary herself, when she's told these things, she said, my soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. She knew that Jehovah God was her saviour. Zacharias, righteous priest, he said of the Messiah to be born, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us. He says in verse 77, the greatest rescue comes when sins are forgiven. The prophet Micah, who is a pardoning God like you, The Old Testament says God is a forgiving God who removes your sins as far as the east is from the west, buries them in the depths of the deepest sea, remembers them no more. And he does so on the basis of the person and work of his son, the Savior like no other, Jesus Christ. And those in the Old Testament who knew that they were sinners, having broken God's law under the curse, facing death, punishment, hopeless, helpless, who cried out to God for mercy, the salvation and rescue they knew was given only through Christ. Said it last time, the work of Jesus on the cross is not only applied forward to all his people who would ever be, but also backwards in time. He's the only saviour. He's the only redeemer. Without him, there is no hope. There is only one way of salvation. And that is by grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. I said last time, there is not one way to be saved in the Old Testament and a different way to be saved in the New. That would mean two different Gospels. In the Old Testament, they were saved by grace through faith in Christ, looking to the coming of Christ. And we are saved by looking back to the first coming of Christ who died on the cross to bear our sin. In the Old Testament, they looked ahead. Here, the Savior promised had come. Born to you this day. There's also a wonderful time when Simeon, a righteous and devout man, a little bit further on in the Gospel of Luke, he's looking for the consolation of Israel, and he knew this. He knew God as Savior And when he is permitted to pick up this little baby Jesus and he holds him in his arms. Can you imagine that? He holds him in his arms and he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. The wonder of that moment, the Savior had come, the rescuer, the deliverer, the Lamb of God would take away the sin of the world, the final sacrifice. 
he will come to do what no other could do, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God is by nature a Savior, and the Father sends the Son to be the Savior of the world, to save his people from their sins. And friend, when the angel said, there has been born for you a Savior, it is so rich with importance. The Savior long awaited had now come. God had stepped down. God come in the flesh to save. Jesus, clear about his mission. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. And he cannot be our King until he is our Savior. All blessings come to us through Jesus alone. It is through his life, his death on the cross, the shedding of his blood, that he takes the wrath and fury of a holy God against sin. He pays the penalty for sin, satisfies the justice of God, stands in our place so that we can be forgiven and rescued and delivered from sin and death and hell. It's in this Savior that all promises become ours and we are brought into his kingdom and we are saved forever. And that is the wonder of Christmas. Christ, the Savior, is born. And the angels say to these shepherds, there has been born for you. These shepherds, the least likely, the despised, no one would have thought this would be for them, but it was not the righteous. Jesus came to save. You might be here this morning and you might be thinking that you're the least likely to be saved. But friend, if you know that you're a sinner, that Jesus is the Savior, he can rescue you. He can forgive you and deliver you. And so I ask you, would you not trust him? Would you not come to him? Would you not believe in him and turn from your sin and cast yourself upon him? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Because he is a saviour like no other. The son of God stepping down in order to raise sinners up to life. Saving them, keeping them until one day they will be with him forever. I pray that you know him. I pray that you're saved this morning. And you can rejoice in this wonderful saviour. Amen.